One, two, three, four. Welcome to Convergence with Oladeji Tiamu. So for this episode, I will be chatting with a dear friend, Meme Onwudiwe, who is a founding member of Evasort, a legal tech startup using artificial intelligence and contract management. And I know the temptation can be to view contracts as somewhat boring, but contracts and ambiguity around contract clauses are at the very center of what leads to disputes. So Evisort has been using AI as a tool for managing contracts in a really interesting way that the legal profession should be mindful of. In addition to his work at Evisort, Meme also founded and chairs Harvard's Legal Technology Symposium, which is an annual conference focused on addressing challenges and opportunities in legal tech broadly. All right, so let's get to it. All right, Memeon Wudiwe, you are the Executive Vice President of Legal and Business Intelligence at Evisort. How are you doing? I'm doing excellent. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on here. I'm, I'm doing great, doing great. Now, so I'm aware of Evisort. I actually classify it as a sort of avant-garde contract company and legal tech. And so I actually imagine that you have a special love for contracts. When you were in law school as a student there, what was your fondest memory of your contracts class? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. I had a lot of fond memories from, from contracts class. I was with uh, you know, P- Professor Brewer. I think one thing that I found really interesting was one thing that people typically complain about their contracts classes is the fact that like much of law school, you're really just reading cases, which is a bit ironic, but people go through a whole contracts class and never read a contract. Mm -hmm. You know, they're just reading cases about contracts and, you know, the excerpts of the contract that might be cited in the case, but like not actually the contracts themselves. And that kind of goes towards that law school's litigation, you know, a a bit focused, right? But I did like that on that final exam, one part of it was actually a scenario from from an airline. You know how someone got kicked off an airline? Well, the airline made the mistake. They double booked, right? Yeah. Um, So the airline double booked and they had like this whole scene pulling this person off of a plane, right? Even though he did nothing wrong, it was their mistake. And so basically the exam question was that, like a press release of that scenario that was real. And then actually just kind of a copy paste of both that airline's customer policy and the kind of rules from the, uh, you know, the, the national kind of transportation uh, TSA service and, and how they say that airlines have to treat people. You basically have to kind of do your own interpretation of how they both state things based off that scenario. And I found it interesting because you got to read the actual contracts and uh. actually and analyze a, a document itself. Yeah, that's that's really cool. I feel like airlines are in a particularly it's a good hypo, I would say, on an exam because it's almost predictive of where airlines have been for the past 20 months with the pandemic, where they've had to some airlines have had to remove passengers because they refused to wear masks or they didn't comply with certain national or company specific rules and regulations. And so what to do when there is 
from the airline's perspective, you know, like a material breach is, Mm -hmm. is not the clearest thing, at least when you're a customer, because you just buy the ticket. You don't really read the fine print all that much. Mm -hmm. No, that makes, that that makes a lot of sense. And I I feel like basically, I mean, with a lot of these adhesion contracts, even if you did read the, no one reads the terms and (laughs) negotiates. If you could read it, you wouldn't really, you know, um, uh, do anything. You basically are kind of at those, whims right it's interesting especially when they differ right when there's some plans you know where you know you have to have a seat that's empty in between and another yeah. plane, you know where there's not and it's kind of up to the consumer to decide kind of you know yeah kind of weigh those differences right so it can get interesting yeah yeah well it sounds like professor brewer asked a really great hypothetical for and relevance for the current moments in this uh, exam a couple of years, a few years ago. So I guess I'm wondering, it, it also raises the issue of data management, right? These large corporations, they have so many customers, so many different stakeholders at play, and sometimes they make mistakes. And with that hypothetical, it was basically like double booking and not knowing it until the final moment when it was too late. So Evasort is, my understanding, trying to solve this challenge with contract management, with uh, greater data analysis, with managing contracts. And your CEO, uh, Jerry Ting, he told me a couple of years ago when Evasort was still at Harvard's Innovation Lab, he mentioned that Evasort just stands for evidence sorter, <laughs> which I thought was really cool, a good combination. And, and so maybe you could speak to like the importance of contract management in this specific moment and the importance of sorting evidence through the approach that Evasort is taking. Yeah, no, that's a, that's, that's a really good, that's a great anecdote. I will say the name was a little bit more litigation focused before when we kind of initially as a brainchild, it was more on the litigation side, but more still now it's more on the contract side, on the transactional side of the house. But to your point, it really is about kind of sorting through data. And it's basically about turning contracts, you know, into data. Because as you just said, there's a lot of important information you know, at the micro level that is within those contracts. And so when these different situations come up, it's not just legal who needs to know uh, information within contracts, right? It's actually business units and teams across the organization that have important information they need to get to within contracts, but legal is the holder of the contracts, not because of the necessity of it to their kind of day-to-day, but because they're the ones who can understand them and make sure they're correct, rather the custodians of the contracts, you know, from from that perspective. And what we're really, you know, getting at when we think about kind of turning contracts into data, right, and really being able to kind of get the key information to to correct folks uh, across the organization, you know, to give you like another micro example, if I'm in the marketing department, right, and I want to put someone's logo on our website, and I wonder, can we do that? I mean, today, what I would do is I'd ask legal and then, you know, ruin someone's day, right, who has to go through, you know, find the different agreements, you know, with those people, find that exact language and get it to them, right? Um, But if you think about that different information within contracts as data, then you'd be able to not give the entire contract to that person in marketing, right, but just the relevant pieces to that, 
right? Because that data has been structured. So you can pass the relevant information to the relevant people. And so a lot of the busy work that's done by legal to retrieve information from contracts and get them to relevant business units can be automated, freeing up legal to do higher level work across the organization. And that's kind of been our, our approach to uh, kind of looking at contracts from that data centric uh, perspective. Yeah, yeah, that's that's so interesting. I, I just to zoom in on turning contracts into data, it makes complete sense because there is so much information in a contract and it's not digestible to people who are outside of the legal community. So converting that into data, I'm sure, is useful for just like awareness, but it's also, I imagine, in terms of data analytics, really powerful when those words are now in a data form and you can analyze them, you can process them and maybe do some predictive evaluative work. So maybe to take a step back, because it's clear you have a special love for contracts, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I kind of just wanted to explore how you think about contracts from a bit of a theoretical way, because now you're describing contracts in the within the transactional perspective. And for me, I've thought of contracts as really powerful for preventative dispute resolution, right? So this this podcast is all about dispute resolution. I think like contracts are, are at the core of disputes and having clarity and sufficient understanding and consent from all contracting parties can be really powerful to prevent these contracting parties from entering into a dispute in the future. So, so that's kind of how I think about contracts. How, what role do you think contracts plays in, from this like theoretical framing in business management? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, right? Because so much of contracts, if we're going to go to the theoretical, right? So much of it is really just trust. And so much of it is really writing things that, frankly, if any of those things are actually enforced, then things have already failed, right? And you kind of go into a contract not wanting to trigger any of its terms, right? Because you're going in wanting to do something great. And this is just a fail safe that kind of hopefully gets dusty, right? Like it's best if a contract kind of gets dusty, you know, it kind of sits in a drawer. I think that there is much less active enforcement of contracts than uh, we we kind of assume, much like the law more generally, but that's a conversation for a different day. But when you think about active enforcement of contracts, when you think about you know companies with hundreds of thousands, millions of contracts, there's not eyes on that all the time. And like I said before, in most folks' best case scenario, it sits in a drawer and gets dusty, right? And so I think that you'll find a lot of the times it gets in the drawer and sits in the drawer and gets dusty until events on the ground trigger, you know, situations when you need to go and look at it, right? But there's not that much of actively going in to the contract ahead of time and looking for opportunities to leverage pre-negotiated things to your advantage because of the issue I talked about before, it's like, it's very difficult to, um, and, you know, it's so difficult to that, you know, there's a whole profession of people just to kind of be the ones to handle them. Um, and, and anyone else going to them has to kind of go through them. Right. And it's the idea of like, you know, for example, let me give you the idea of rebates, right? We've got clients like this all the time where they're lawyers, they go into these negotiations 
they spend months and they negotiate these amazing things like, hey, for every 10,000 quid that we buy, you know, we get X widgets, right? And it's like every time we're scaling, we're making all this money, right? They negotiate this amazing language, but they never effectuate it because who's going to go to page 85 of this 100 page contract to find that table and look, it's okay. So we went between this band of, you know, volume of widgets purchase, we're saving this much, right? So they'll even create policies that say, hey, we'll only enforce rebates on contracts that might be over $75,000 in value, because those are the ones where it's actually the amount we're going to make from that rebate is actually worth the effort of going through every contract of that size and reviewing looking for that, right? Um, Which is to say that they're actively leaving money on the table, right? Just because of like how difficult it would be to get there, which is to say that like much of law, it's a question of enforcement, right? And, you know, no, most contracts might be sitting getting dusty, but when there's opportunities to leverage them, you know, folks get it. And I think another step, you know, to your point, talking about the now, obviously COVID is, you know, a situation where, I mean, it's a perfect example where nobody was keeping track of every force majeure clause. They were, you know, it was a throwaway clause in, in, in contracts for a lot of people. It would be against human rights to ask your paralegal for no reason, just to be copy pasting every single, you know, force majeure clause, to be keeping track of everyone that talks about the pandemic. But when something occurs, you need to have that information and then you're kind of scrambling, right? And had you been storing that data, which is what a contract is, really, frankly, the most important data at a company, right? Actually, it would elevate the role of the lawyer if they could look at the contract in this different perspective, right? But if you t- look at it like data, that was just a data point that was kind of missing, right? And if you cannot bring that data-centric view, you won't be caught off guard by, you know, a force majeure being triggered because, of course, you have visibility into everything you've signed. You signed it, right? Like, I think, <laughs> I think that, yeah, I think that we often think that, you know, these are perfectly, oh, we know everything we sign, we know everything in our contracts. But in reality, it's very much not the case. Yeah, that's, that's so fascinating. Just so many thoughts. And you touched on the example with like variable rates, and how they can be kept in a closet and get dusty. And I just imagine like, negotiating those variable rates within rebates, like they were done very deliberately. And I'm sure hopefully it met both contracting parties' interests, yet because some of these contracts, especially with larger corporations, are so large, they can easily be forgotten. And so that's basically, even though the the contract negotiation satisfied the clients and the, the contracting party's interests with time just just a mere scope of the contracts can lead to these key items being forgotten and i think that raises the question and i think this is a problem that evasort is specifically designed to solve the question is how do we manage these contracts that have somewhat material terms that are forgotten with time so that I guess the original intent, the original spirit of the negotiators are fulfilled. How can, how does Evasort seek in, in converting contracts into data? How does Evasort seek to solve that problem of forgetfulness or dusty contract clauses? Yeah. I mean, first of all, you need to think about the fact that that occurs everywhere, right? 
so many companies, you even think about turnover of lawyers, right? You know, as lawyers come and go, it's not that they're going in and first spending their first weeks reading every contract that's ever been signed to that company, right? Nobody's doing that, right? So over time, that's probably occurring at most companies. You also think a lot of companies don't get their first in-house lawyer until kind of a years into kind of being companies, right? So there's already probably hundreds of contracts have been signed at that point that kind of, unless you're spending your first couple of weeks going through meticulously keeping Dragon and Dave and all of them, you know, I'm, uh, I'm just trying to get to the point that that idea of kind of the key person risk, right? Which is you're asking like, hey, what if the person who's been doing all these negotiations leaves? I would, yep. I would posit that that's kind of probably the standard of like yeah. kind of where most companies are at, where there isn't someone who has that visibility, you know, into all the contracts. And I guess, you know, in that frame, it's more of a reactive, you know, something in the world happens and, yep. you know, it happens on, you know, a paradigm that isn't covered in the five things I track in all my contracts, right? Let alone I started tracking those five things, a thousand contracts in, and maybe three of them I started with and then two I only started a year ago. So even these data sets, you think you have a not perfect data sets and running an analysis over a non-perfect data set doesn't get you anything. So at the end of the day, you know, these manual systems lead to, I mean, at the end of the day, manual review, right? What's required is going into every contract and either copy pasting that language into somewhere else where you're keeping track of it or just keeping spreadsheets and spreadsheets of data <laughs> or going to a contract management system which is like yeah. oh great i bought a contract management system but it's not managing the contract for you. you're the one that it's just an excel with like a nice color you know you're still the one entering all that data in. you know what i mean it's yeah. the repositories right and that's why when we i mean because you know we started this as students right and when we saw that as the world and we're like it's 2016 it's about to be 2020 it is ridiculous that i just spent hours typing an effective date and clauses into a contract and <laughs> upload it to a contract management system and if i wanted to remember any of that to type it again it doesn't make any sense right? like yeah. what's the point of this system so yeah we just thought you know, it's very natural to make a contract management system that's actually managing your contract. You don't have to tell, hey, this will expire in two years unless it will forget. You put it in there and it's like, oh, this will expire in two years. That's a list already made. You know, here's all the key clauses. Because to your point, you might not need the force majeure that day. Right. But it's good to have it. And frankly, even in the event when you're using AI, with the second you, because I mean, you're always going to be tracking X number of clauses and data points in your contracts. And there's always going to be a situation where you need X plus one. And let me tell you, I mean, like we do 60 data points out of the box. Most people keep track of like five or 10 manually. And like I said, usually incomplete. They start with different ones at different times. Right. And so, but the real issue comes when it's that X plus one, right. And that X plus one, it's either, Hey, we're going to start tracking this moving forward, which is great, but just creates an incomplete data set or we're going to have to manually go through every one of our existing agreements and, you know, determine whether or not has that, you know, information or not. And even when folks are doing that, they're probably not copy pasting a clause. They'll either say, oh, it has the clause or it doesn't have it, or it's standard or it's not standard. Um, but if something like COVID happens, you need to say, does the force majeure clause say pandemic, epidemic, or quarantine? Right. Show me everyone that says that. You're going to have to do it again. You know what I mean? And it's just, it's a very imperfect system, but it's driven by kind of events, right? And I guess this is a passive system. You know how Eversort does. Eversort is passively. All we do is we we structure unstructured data. We just focus on contracts, and so we're just passively structuring this data and in contracts 
as it's being stored within our system. You think about, you know, you think about kind of the difference between like, you know, file cabinets and Google, right? You know, the file, you need to know exactly what folder it's in, what subfolder it's in, what sub subfolder, what document it is, and what page the information you're looking for in that document is, and then you go for it, right? You go to Google, you don't say, hey, look exactly here for this. You just say, hey, show me that, show me that. And it's yeah. already structured the data of the internet. So it's instantaneously showing exactly what you're looking for, right? And that's what we're doing yeah. the contracts, right? You know, we're structuring the data in them. And so as issues arise that you maybe didn't conceive of previously, it's not gonna be a fire drill, it's something that's on hand. And we enable users to train their own algorithms. So if there is that X plus one situation, you can just show the AI some examples of X plus one, and it's gonna do that backwards and forwards. So all of your existing agreements and new ones it finds, that will start looking for it, right? And that's how our approach to kind of contracts, you know, kind of addresses the issues you were talking about. Gotcha. So basically there are sometimes these dusty contracts and dusty contract clauses in, in our cabinets. And Evisor, uses or uh, seeks to structure unstructured data. Basically the contracts themselves that are large in number with so much going on within them, Evisort's contract management tools are bringing structure to all of that data there. So that makes complete sense. And I, I can see why there's such a strong value proposition with what you're providing to the, to the market. And so you, you mentioned in passing in what you just shared that AI is involved in this contract management tools that Evasort uses. So could you speak to like how specifically artificial intelligence is being used at Evasort for contract management? I mean, yeah, I mean, AI is the core of our system. I would say in the years that we've been around, I mean, we have a full CLM where we're, you know, able to draft contracts, go through approval workflows, pre-signature, you know, do the signatures and all the way through storage and alerting and audits and, you know, things down the line, you know, from that perspective. But the first thing we developed, we were literally four law students at from Harvard and data scientists from MIT and you know, a couple of computer scientists as well, there wasn't even a business person around. And we were like, what we were looking at, it's like I said in the beginning, we thought it was crazy that once we graduated, we we're going to be paid $100,000 for the first couple of years of just copy pasting indemnities. And we thought we could probably, it's like 2016, that could definitely be automated, right? And so the first idea we had was the AI of why is it that we're going to these years of training and intense legal thought through case theory to come out, getting paid a lot, yes, but copy-pasting indemnities in a year and a time when we know that's a process that could be automated, right? And the irony of that is that we ended up copy-pasting lots of indemnity clauses because that's how you train the AI. And so the yeah. lawyers were kind of doing that while the AI, but we were doing it, of course, so no one ever had to do it again. Right? That was kind of like, you know, and not kind of a one-off project with a project so that, you know, that kind of would be a manual test that folks wouldn't have to do. So, I mean, we started, we actually had AI before UI. It was actually a really funny conversation because like when, when I, you know, when I, I CTO and me and, you know, started making these algorithms, they started really becoming very accurate. You know, you know, Jerry was just like, hey, uh, let's uh, let's start making a platform. This is great. Let's go to Mugden. He's like, oh, I can't do that. Right. And that's when we quickly learned the difference between data science and computer science is he could make, you know, algorithms, but he couldn't make a, a platform or like a button when your mouse goes on it, it goes bigger. Right. And so we have to like, yeah, separately from the data science team, but we're, we're in AI first company, which I think is pretty kind of unique. 
in the yeah games. that that's that's so funny uh that i mean like eversort overall was developed the the engineering solutions through artificial intelligence before the user interface came along. That, that's actually really fun. And I think that that makes it makes sense. I mean, you're a startup and you see a very specific problem in, in, in the legal profession and with law firms. And as you mentioned earlier, you kind of are somewhat advancing human rights because you want to make sure that the paralegal or first year associate isn't just doing the <laughs> mind numbing copy and paste actions with contracts. And so I, I just want to be clear with so for 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 people listening. So the the way I think about AI and algorithms, because sometimes they're sometimes treated consistently with one another, and they're just some small differences. So for me, I think of like an algorithm. It's just a set of instructions, and there are predetermined outputs that a computer scientist, the programmer writing the algorithm, determines when specific inputs are provided and then like artificial intelligence is an aggregation of algorithms so that that ai system that has been programmed by the computer scientists it can perform greater analysis with recognizing the complexities when seeking to generate a specific output. And this is all in comparison to like single algorithms. So basically AI can operate with greater flexibility and handle more complexity relative to a single algorithm. So I, I just wanted to highlight that for, for people listening. And so basically the inputs for whether it's an, a single algorithm or artificial intelligence, the inputs are really important. And the common fear with people in your industry that are trying to harness the benefits of artificial intelligence is just like the garbage in, garbage out problem. Like, how do we get the right inputs so that the outputs that our AI system is generating is not problematic. So how do you how do you think about the garbage in, garbage out problem? And how do how does Evasort kind of make sure that the inputs that the AI is analyzing are appropriate inputs? Yeah, I mean, we really just almost overexpose it to contracts. I mean, tens of millions of contracts we, we train the, the AI on from that perspective. Uh, but I would say, actually, the the best approach is to, because I mean, accuracy is always going to be 100% accuracy with algorithms, right? You know, isn't going to be possible because it's predictions, right? Even even what it's doing is kind of, you know, putting out kind of numbers and it's, you know, it's sure that a 90 or 80% level that something like is, you know, recognized as something else, right? But I think what is important is to understand and uh, kind of balance how you approach, you know, any levels of uh, any levels of inaccuracy, right? And so to build it in potentially an over-inclusive way, and so that in a way that in a way that if it's clauses, for example, a real risk would be missing an indemnification clause, 
versus if there's a hundred clauses and maybe you read five extra that might be on that kind of gray area between indemnification and limitation of liability, right? And then also if there's issues that lower quality, right? Uh, lower accuracy, right? You know, like if there's, you know, low, you know, if the document comes in that's you know, a low quality OCR and we can identify, hey, there's something in this document that lower the accuracy, being able to triage out, right? You know, if there are a percentage where there might require human review, right? And so I think that would be kind of the the, the kind of best approach for the garbage in, uh, garbage out. But I would say a lot of the issue that we're trying to solve is the garbage in, garbage out, which is that for a lot of companies tracking things manually, a lot of that data isn't reliable, either because different humans kind of approach different ways of tracking things, or because, like I said, it's very unlikely they've been tracking everything from the start, right? And as they choose to track X plus one, a lot of times they're just starting from that point in time moving forward, right? So when you want to do full analyses looking backward, it's difficult. And so a lot of times, even if um, I think kind of AI approaches are, are really solid for solving the garbage in, garbage out, um, because of that, even if there are situations where you might require manual review, you can focus that manual review only on those smaller circumstances, the 5% versus having it being uh, 95 or 100% like that. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. So from what you mentioned, Evasort in testing before actually putting it to the market and deploying it with your customers, like the testing takes in hundreds of thousands or millions of contracts, right? There's a substantial amount, as you said, an overexposure to contracts before it's actually deployed. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I would just say that, I mean, we spent years at the Harvard Innovation Lab doing that. Like, that's what we were yeah. spending years at the Harvard Innovation Lab doing, almost as a, yeah. as a science project of, could we trade this? And what <laughs> we did, right? It's just like, oh, well, then we should probably keep doing this because, you know, it actually works, right? And so, yeah, yeah no, I mean, definitely, I think definitely a different kind of growth journey from other companies as we kind of were a research company. We're researchers at Harvard Law and MIT kind of looking at capabilities of AI, turn contracts into data. We actually trademarked earlier this year, going through the process, but we're, you know, first in line, trademarked the word data ties which I think is a steal, frankly. Nice. Data ties. It's a great, I mean, yeah, it's crazy. We snuck in right before that's a real verb, frankly. Uh, but I mean, yeah, I mean, because that's what we're doing. We're, I mean, it's like, we don't just want to digitize your contract. A digitized contract is so blasé. It's a scanned PDF. Sometimes you can't even control F. You need it to be data, frankly. And smart move, smart move, of course, with the data ties trademark now. Well done. Yeah, so, so the overexposure to the contracts came from being with the innovation lab and, and like after leaving there, now the deployments are actually being launched. So I guess I was, I was just wondering, like, is there a specific threshold? You mentioned hundred percent accuracy is impossible. makes complete sense. But in the testing, I imagine some of your potential customers could be asking questions around the accuracy and whether you have a specific threshold of accuracy before it's being launched out. So, so do you have a, a specific threshold or is it more flexible for accuracy percentage? No, we don't, unless it's over 95 in internal testing, we won't go. And, gotcha. and then, I mean, but there are folks, frankly, a lot of folks, 95 is very high for a lot of folks. A lot of yeah. folks, like the large people, when they're coming in, you've got to imagine Oladeji, 
you're talking about company. We, we, we work with like Microsoft, Bank of New York, Mellon, you know, folks with hundreds of thousands, millions of contracts. If you're saving a human beings having to read 800,000 contracts. Yeah. Right. And then also you think of it, let me tell you something that I think is also going to be, it's also going to kind of increase the leverage, the, the use of these technologies moving forward. And it's kind of from a data privacy perspective. Also, when you think about the fact that a lot of times these kind of uh, processes are being done in kind of other countries, you know, where folks are kind of leveraging folks to kind of manually view uh, these contracts. Because we look at data privacy, Facebook can't tell my favorite color to, to folks in Canada, right? And so for how long will, you know, companies be able to send hundreds of thousands of contracts to, to countries like India, you know, or Indonesia or elsewhere, right? And so I think that, you know, when we think about these percentages, you also need to think about the accuracy of a human being, which yeah. is under 90%, right? And it's the same way that when you look at AI bias and judging, you stop mm-hmm. thinking about from the human bias and judging, right? And so like, yeah, people are always crying about AI bias, but I can show yeah. you a lot of human bias, you know? And so I think that, uh, I think a lot of times, you know, I love having the accuracy conversations. I think people need to bring the right perspective to it. Think about human plus AI is definitely, you know, the yes. best way of doing it. And I mean, who, who's humans, like I just said, is very important, but human yeah. plus AI, is the best, right? And you need to be thinking about it from that perspective and not be kind of caught up in accuracy numbers, but look at the value number, the value you're going to be getting from it. And I mean, that's, that's like, I, I mean, that rebate example alone is hundreds yep. of millions of dollars being left at the table for some large companies, right? And so I think that's the perspective to take. Yes, yes. So you're, yeah, I, I, I find that really persuasive. Oftentimes when we think about the, trade-offs or the shortcomings and the biases with AI. It's just the fact that the AI is making certain mistakes or has some biases that it's operating with. But rarely, or from my perspective, there's just an insufficient consideration for like, what are we comparing it to? It's everything is relative. I'm all about the theory of general relativity. Um, so we have to think about these things in comparison to the alternatives. And you mentioned judging and judicial decision-making. And in that camp, it's basically judges and human decision-makers in general have their own biases. And to say that AI is forever flawed because of a limited set of biases that are strongly influenced by the programmers or just the social context kind of misses the point around what we're comparing AI bias to. And the human biases are just as, or I would say, incredibly more significant when we're talking about a individual with concentrated power who has, who has rarely had to, in, at least in judging, rarely had to be judged, rarely had to have been kind of subjugated to the judicial decision-making process. They're usually in the position of power. And so they're just like, from a system level, there are inherent biases Mm -hmm. that will come from a judge making the decision when they've never or rarely had to have been part of the, the party being judged, basically. So you're kind of, yeah, I, I, I find that really persuasive and I'm going to stop rambling on that and go back to what you mentioned around data, data privacy. So I think that's a really important point when we, when these fortune 500 companies are 
sending contracts for review to other countries that don't have as robust data privacy regulations like the EU, like California. Uh, the US, in my opinion, has pretty weak data privacy regulations relative to California and the EU's GDPR approach, but certainly relative to markets that haven't had to, to spend a lot of time considering the importance of data privacy. And so Evasort, from how you're explaining it, kind of does have that value add in reducing the need to send all of these contracts to be read in a jurisdiction that has weaker data privacy protections than the US or the EU. So I, I think that's really persuasive. Maybe to flip things on its head, Evisort is still a centralized intermediary, right? Like you are taking the data that contracting parties agree to and you are consolidating that within your system. And by being an intermediary, I think that there, there are certain unique risks you're exposed to, especially with cybersecurity. And so how, how does Evasort from like a cybersecurity perspective think about and seek to manage concerns around ransomware and hacks like that? I mean, I'd say from a cybersecurity perspective, you know, we, first, I mean, when I talk about us working with you know, the Bank of New York Mellons and the Microsofts of the world, you, know, you can be sure that comes with a lot of penetration testing from working with that, you know, companies like that. When it comes to, you know, hosting our data, you know, we only work with kind of the, the top level kind of providers from that perspective and have a very strong internal computer security and IT security team. And so I really think it's kind of the focus there that, that we have. But just to be very clear, when I'm, I wouldn't compare risks here to the risks I was talking about before in that we host our data in the United States, right? And so when you think about issues from a GDPR perspective, it's about where the data is going from a hosting residency perspective, especially data that has PII, you know, personal identifying information. And so contracts many times can and do have personal identifying information like names, email addresses, and phone numbers. And so a lot of these rules, I'm not saying like hypotheticals, I'm saying they'll de facto say that such data with that kind of information can't be sent to certain places, right? And so I'm just saying it would be de facto in infraction versus kind of a, a situation of a potential attack or something, just to be kind of clear on that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. I, I get that. I, I was... I see the distinction you're making between data privacy and the benefits Evisort presents. I was just kind of introducing the cybersecurity lens since you do have a lot of data that I'm sure your customers are, you mentioned the stress testing piece with Microsoft and uh, BNY Mellon. So that, that makes complete sense. So right now there are a couple of important technologies like within the AI genre, and that's since you're reading contracts and converting it into data, you have some companies in your line of work are using like optical character recognition. Others are using ICR. And yeah, I was, I was wondering if, if you have any comments around which between OCR and ICR with optical character recognition, which is being used at Evasort because OCR, from my understanding, has a strong value in 
just extracting text from scanned documents or JPEGs and then converting it into like machine readable forms. And ICR has at times been used for like neural network systems. So do you have any thoughts around the OCR, ICR use cases within of a sort? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so we actually, we use neural networks within our kind of AI technology. Um, we do leverage mainly OCR. There's actually a case study online. First things we did was build enhancements for OCR. And we actually, the case studies that's on Adobe's website, because we've been working with Adobe on it for, for, for a while now too, in that even that use case I told you about tables is not a typical use case because as you know, a lot of OCR sometimes it engages with tables, you know, kind of tries to turn it into an image file and a lot of important data in those tables is then lost, right? So we found that, and this actually even goes to your past question about accuracy, right? To become an AI company, we first had to be an OCR company so that we mm. could get contracts to a level where AI could actually run on it. Because the AI is only looking and only reviewing the text that's been digitally created. And so that yeah. text to your garbage in, garbage out question, right? Yeah. And that text is, uh, you know, an issue that's going to create an issue for us, right? Which is why we also kind of flag that from them, you know, even if it does get, kind of get past that point. And so I'd say we've leveraged OCR. That being said, but I mean, we've still been pushing the envelope on the OCR, as you can kind of see there. And I definitely have yeah. to take out the, look at the case as a good picture of me in there too, in the innovation lab, actually. <laughs> and I think past that, we have a different approach for like, you know, we can identify signatures, right, within signature blocks, right? And so maybe we can't read their name, right? But we can take the important information that this has been assigned contract and then have it as a data point of, hey, here's all your contracts that are signed. Here's the ones that aren't signed, which is a really important use case. We've helped companies who are going to buy a company for like millions of dollars and they have the valuation and they send over their due diligence and we days run through Eversort and they say, hey, these are 14 of your sales contracts where they're not signed by the counterpart unless you can find that counterparty when well, we won't add it to your valuation will drop right and this is and that's the other thing of enforcement they couldn't do that without the visibility into their contracts so it's not a question of it's really a question of enforcement it's really a question of visibility which very little exists there's the idea that it exists because everyone kind of nods but i mean everyone, <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly which is reviewing the next contract they're not looking back they don't know what's been done yeah Wow, that's that's really cool. And it, it's really cool how you're using and expanding on OCR. So um, that's super interesting. I, I want to just maybe switch gears a bit from the technology driving Evasort. And I wanted to switch to how Evasort is impacting the future of education, right? And my understanding is Evasort every year has been hiring legal fellows that's do non-traditional work. So how, how are you engaging with legal fellows, current law students that you hire as legal fellows? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, like I said, we started the company as law students, right? And I'm talking like, you know, marketing, sales, you know, finance, you know, leadership. It was all lost and found not an MBA on it, right? And so at the time, I mean, with data scientists, of course, right? But from a business perspective, it was lost students doing it. So, I mean, we kind of know from that there's not a job at our company that a law student couldn't do because, like, we wouldn't be a company if that was the case, right? Because we were doing, you know, all of those kind of different kind of jobs. So we actually now have over 20 lawyers working at Eversort. 
And we're hiring our first legal counsel now, which is to say those lawyers are working as, I mean, CEO, COO, chief of staff, head of product, account managers, you know, salespeople, designers, uh, marketing, right? Kind of writing our blog posts, right? Like all kinds of alternative roles. And so when you look at the 2L fellow program, right, which gets active students either during the school year, during their summers, opportunities to work at Eversword, they're, well, like I said, we don't have a legal team for them to work at. You know, they can be on the solutions architects team, right, which are the folks actually, you know, developing, um, you know, platforms for folks in the field, our implementation teams, right, even marketing, right, our data science team. Actually, we're hiring right now, I'll give a little bit of a plug, uh, just to work with, you know, Fred Smalkin on our data science team, right, and he's a lawyer himself who's kind of the innovation work and is working as a data science manager you know, on our team, helping to develop new algorithms. So the, the new fellow we're going to be getting will be working specifically on developing algorithms and working on definitions. Because if you think about it, when you're turning a contract into data, you're taking something subjective, right? Like language and law and contracts and turning it into something objective, numbers. And so the definition of what you're looking for is very important. And it's actually a lot of the work from a legal perspective in that dynamic. And so they're going to get a really unique experience, you know, working on that during the school year. And so kind of, you know, reading contracts, it's a contract class when you are reading contracts, you see what I'm saying? And so yeah, uh, it's yeah. definitely interesting opportunities. Um, and actually, I think um, this year we'll be bringing on our first one for full-time work. I will say our first ever fellow actually went on to create his own legal tech company and actually just graduated from Georgetown this last May. And I've really been honored to, to, to lead it uh, in, throughout its couple of years. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So Evastort is kind of like an incubation hub now, it sounds like. that. That's really great. So another question, one of my last questions is around you, because I know that you do a lot outside of Evasort, and that includes teaching at law schools. And so the academic year is about to start. And I just wanted to figure out what Meme is up to in academia. You, you have some papers that you've written. So could you just speak to what you've been doing on, on those fronts? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, yes, we were talking before this, and yesterday I was a guest lecturer at a, at a class at, um, at UGA, uh, UGA Law. Actually, a really interesting class taught by uh, Brian Mink on legal analytics. Which is, he's, a, he's actually a general counsel at, at, at the same time, head of legal operations. And I've been, um, as you said, you know, this year to get published in a peer-reviewed journal on some issues around space law that I was uh, pretty, pretty passionate about. And like I said, we've actually, you know, we've worked on case studies, you know, with Columbia Business School that's being taught there now, and also one with, uh, you know, Professor Scott Westfall that's being taught in his class at Harvard Law School. Actually, he's got published last week in an article um, by, from Corporate on court in corporate counsel, um, actually with Louise Firestone, you know, the, the general counsel of uh, Louis Vuitton, you know, where we're talking about alternative kind of things, basically saying, hey, coming out of this pandemic, everyone's looking to change. We, you know, we've seen law school operate in a different way. You know, let's look at how we can optimize law schools, ideas like apprenticeships, right? Or kind of having legal tech or business or in-house legal, you know, provide more jobs directly. And I think that's the one thing that I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit passionate about, which is that, you know, we've been talking about, especially in these last couple of years, you know, how big law 
is becoming a little bit less powerful as in-house kind of flexes its muscle, right? And even this year with legal tech making billions of dollars or, you know, in kind of, uh, in kind of in investments or however much is going in, but you're still seeing that from when it comes to opportunities for young lawyers, the standard path is going directly into a law firm, right? Yeah. Doing a couple years of training, you know, securing the bag and then kind of doing things <laughs> Where, right and so how can we we can't gripe a big law for not teaching new skills like technology or kind of being more business-oriented skills when you're not providing opportunities for law students to start their careers with business-oriented folks in the in-house law or tech focused folks in like you know uh legal tech and so i think it's important to, to, to kind of do that and that's one thing that you know i'm uh, I, I think about as well cool cool yeah yeah that's awesome that's awesome and i'm i'm really happy and i'm happy for you and excited to see how some of the thoughts you're putting on paper and engaging with students will impact the future of the legal profession so my final question to you is the most important question and that is what you believe about the future of contract management or contracts generally and technology that very few people in your industry believe? Um, I mean, I would say it's really just a synthesis of what I've been saying kind of this whole time, but contracts are data. And contracts are not only data, but they're the most important data at a company, which makes, you know, uh, a general counsel of company, frankly, the most important data executive at a company because they hold the keys to information that can drive business and kind of business strategy uh, fully, right? And they have, and they can be the ones to provide that visibility to the rest of the company and really elevate their role at the company. Uh, but a lot of them kind of, uh, not a lot of them, but I just think a lot of the view right now is kind of, you know, either kind of, hey, you focus on reviewing contracts, you know, reduce risk, right? I mean, kind of do that day to day, but not as much into the gold mine that is the kind of thousands of contracts you've already signed. I think for a lot of companies, they look at like a, a repository full of a hundred thousand scan contracts. And it's just, they're like, oh my God, that's the worst thing ever is. But they should be so lucky. That is a treasure trove. That is 100,000 data points of exactly how your negotiation is going to end. And you can leverage that information to optimize your next negotiation to do it within days and not weeks because you know exactly what they're going to do. Cool, cool. Well, thank you so much, Meme. I know you have plenty on your plate today, so I will let you go. But I, I just wanted to thank you for amazing conversation and being a part of it. Nice. No, it's been a, it's an absolute pleasure, Odeji. Always great. You know, from we were section mates back in the day and very, <laughs> very, very, very great to, to be on. Happy to be on anytime. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you.